Yes, thank you, Joffrey. Welcome to Wake Up with Alan Watts, the radio lecture series that aims to awaken you on your drive time Bay Area commute. I am, of course, the godhead in disguise who calls himself Alan Watts, a name I was assigned at birth, the first great awakening. Of course, the irony is we do not choose our names. We are assigned them by our parents. We can change them legally, but it can be awkward. Imagine in your mind's third eye, your name was Steve, a perfectly respectable name. But then one day you are awakened and you wish to be known henceforth as Skyhawk. <laughs> really, it's, it's quite a ridiculous name. It, it sounds an awful lot like a Buick. <laughs> Skyhawk, dinner time. Our theme today, the Veil of Thoughts. A veil is a very lacy thing you place over your head, like this napkin, you see? It gives you napkin vision, it changes your perception. For example, everything in this studio looks like the napkin of the Taco Bell. I can make out the blobs and shapes, but no details. And so we color our eyes with thoughts. In the West, we spend all day thinking. We wake up, the first thing we do, we think a thought. We think of what we have to do. We sure do think an awful lot. We think so hard that we don't know what we're doing. We might look in the mirror and say, when was it that I began brushing my teeth? Dear God, it's been an hour and a half and I'm late for my job at the IBM or missile factory. We think about lunch during our breakfast and our thoughts race around the dinner topic when we crunch on our shows. But a person who thinks all the time has nothing to think about except other thoughts. And that's just awful stuff, really. That's when we get into trouble. The heebie-jeebies and all that sort of rubbish. Did you know that you can scare yourself to death? It's true. You can think a thought so doubly frightful it would be like your skeleton had leaped clear out of your body. Ghastly stuff. Your hair would stand on end. And again, your skeleton would be halfway down the street. On foot, a skeleton is the fastest non-living animal. Faster than a cheetah, by far. Thinking is the primary gross domestic product in my adopted home of the United States of America. Here, Nixon, Kissinger, Holden, and all those people, to Cavett, they just sit around all day, deep in thought, like it matters. If you could weigh a day's thought, it would be less than half a gram. Ask anyone. Ask a child. Ask the wind. If thoughts were sugar and you added them to your California coffee, you'd spit it out unless you like it black, like the super zen floating monks of the hidden mountain range some 15 kilometers outside Marrakesh. Those guys take theirs black, and they never think a thought. And they also never kill bugs. But here in the Bay Area, everyone is having a great think they think up solutions to the problems of their lives as if their lives were a problem. It is called the inner monologue. Have you heard of this? A monologue is the, the worst part of any movie or play or drama. And this is what's going on in your head all day long. Oh, you really are cool and keen if you have an inner monologue. I say... 
Down with the inner monologue, down with the stream of consciousness. Still yourself, quiet your mind, and let a butterfly land on your shoulder. Let the spider crawl on your eyeball. It's just, just nature, man. Just get over it. In an economy of thought, so-and-so is thinking about this all the time, and what's the hot new thought this year, 1973? Who cares what other people are thinking? Perhaps you do not know what you wish to have for lunch today. What will it be? Now, you might be standing in a line, and the person behind the counter says, uh, what would you like? So you squint and screw up your face and get very tense, like this. But you know full well, it's the Nachos Bel Grande. It's why you went into there, into the Taco Bell. You must trust your instincts, but we don't. We want to impress the Taco Bell lady with how considered we are, how contemplative. So we stand there and we take our full seven minutes, stammering away, mumbling options, sour cream this, pico de gallo that, it's just a bunch of folderol, it's a ritual, it's a symbolic gesture. It is not necessary to the functioning of a healthy society, nor body, nor individual, nor the mind of God to take seven minutes, but we do. Why? When a level 15 Zen guy is watching a caterpillar crawling across the basketball-like surface of a pumpkin, he is not thinking, oh boy, the caterpillar sure is lucky. He must rarely encounter such a large gourd. I wish I had my own sort of huge food. No, he is the pumpkin. He is directly subscribed to the cosmic magazine called Reality Monthly. No thinking required. Twelve issues a year. I suggest to you that thought is awful. You cannot outthink yourself, and yet you must. Have you ever tried to trick yourself into having a good time at a party? Now I go to parties, I'm a lecturer. I know they're terrible. It's just a bunch of laughing and intoxication and hors d'oeuvres, gin sodas, all that. The host might corner you by the bookshelf and say, Why did you know that my niece is staying with us for three weeks? She's been using up all the hot water. She's quite vain. She's got dozens of suitors and the phone won't stop ringing past 10 p.m. We listen and we nod and we keep nodding like we're being paid to nod by the nod at a good rate. Like five dollars a nod. But what we are thinking is, we'll kick her out then. Let this strumpet stay with some other aunt and uncle. We think our hosts a fool, secretly, while appearing pious and in total agreement with our host. It's, it's utter deception. It's completely dishonest. A Zen ultra monk would snap the stem of the martini glass in half and commit ritual suicide rather than carry on such small talk. Meanwhile, outside we are facing a shortage of the fossil fuels which threaten to plunge us into coldness. Our landfills and dumps cannot take any more trash. Seagulls squawk and gangs of children play junkyard instruments, washed-up bass, radiator, xylophone and such. What is the solution? Well, we must think, the experts say, if only people thought more. You know, really put their backs into it. Strain away at the old idea pile until we thought our way out of OPEC and Garbage Master 2000, the dump monopoly. You cannot even prove 
but thought exists, and yet, that is the solution to our problems. Well, I just thought of a cougar. Good heavens, what a fright. A total nightmare cat. Spooky zoo animal. Oh, the claws, the teeth, and the nostrils wide. The fiercest predator in all of the zoo. Ooh, what if it got out of its cage and gave you a bite? Bite, 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 bite? Does that frighten you? Does it give you a start? No? How curious. I just wasted your time and mine to prove a point. There is no cougar. Not here, and not at the zoo. It's astounding. It's, it's crisis-level panic over a phantom cat. Multiply that times four billion, and now you see the symbolic device that shackles us to the thought bucket. Did you ever notice that when you are deep in your reverie of designing a perfect utopia that we can all flourish in, you're suddenly overcome with hunger for Lucky Charms cereal for the breakfast times? Yes, they say, think, think, man, think! But don't think too much. Have some marshmallows, my dear boy. It's the thought in famishment cycle. Don't uh, succumb to it. Or uh, golden grams. That's uh, another cereal that gets you with. It's only one ingredient, honey. It's just pure honey squares. Even the gram content is honey-derived. And so they dangle these sweeties in front of you to distract you from the fact that you should be thinking about literally nothing. Make that be our national pastime. Make that be our Olympic sport for the 1976 in Bring Home the Gold, America. But uh, America's too busy thinking about uh, pole vaulting and all that stuff. I suppose pole vaulting could save your ass if there was a crevasse of uh, seven feet wide that you needed to cross and you had only a large run of bamboo to propel yourself. How do these Olympics people come up with these arcane displays of unnatural prowess? Half these sports I've never even heard of. They're preposterous. I mean, really. Let me in there. I'll give you a sport. Who can bring a gong? The quietest. I could. You remember my parable of the Taco Bell napkin? Would you trust a surgeon to remove your legs with that draped over his eyes? The bloody surgeon would probably start sawing away at the chair or the coat rack. Your leg infection would travel all the way up to your brain, killing you instantly. But not before you realized that it was all just a game. And the winner was he who didn't think so much. Ten points for every thought avoided. Now you may ask yourself, what is it that Alan Watts is saying here? Act like a dum-dum, don't use a calculator. Buy a car with no research. File your taxes based on instinct. I'm saying the taxman should forget you exist, no taxes. Imagine that you are born into a world there is no tax. Or how would we pay for the social services and all that? Well, we wouldn't need it. The money saved through this no-tax scheme would make us all richer than our wildest dreams of avarice. You would barter for literally everything it would take all day. But it would be fun. It would be like a dance. A dance of barter. <laughs> I realize that sounds very funny. You will know the Buddha by his laugh. It will sound like this. <laughs> but a false Buddha will laugh 
like this. <laughs> you see the difference? That last laugh was a forced and contrived social ritual. It's a transaction. It's the polite laugh. A real laugh comes from within. You've doubtless heard the advice to breathe. Well, this is what a good breathe sounds like. It sounds like this. Note how it chops off at the end. It's wonderful. It's natural. And here is a false breath. <laughs> it's no good, you see. It's too premeditated. It's overworked. It's a herky-jerky. The subconscious mind knows how to breathe. It just does it for us. We don't sit around willing our breath. Our brains do the thinking for us. Now, if I were a lesser man, I might invite you to breathe along with me. This is a parlor trick. You have been breathing along with me this whole time. How do you like that applesauce? Pretty well, I should imagine. Top 10 thoughts, average American. And no, I'm not a mind reader. This is a survey conducted in the late 1960s, a recent survey. It was conducted in the survey room at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. 2,000 participants. It took a year. The grants were unbelievable. It required a whole office floor to tabulate the results. A fortune in punch cards. This is the average American's top 10 thoughts as reported to the survey team at MIT number 10, Lawn Care. This includes rakes and mowers, associated items. All that good lawn care stuff. That's lawn care coming in at number 10. Number 9, did I take my pill or not? The average American cannot tell you if he's taken his pill. Medical. Number eight. What if I could live in a vast sand castle? What a fascinating idea it would be to live in a vast sand castle. You would sit upon a sandy throne, and at night you would take your leave and retire to your chambers and fall asleep in a bed of sand. Number seven, what's Nixon hiding? He seems sneaky and in need of an antiperspirant formulated for the jowl. I personally think he's up to no good. He is, in my estimation, a crook, a swindler, a cheat, a blackguard, and a not very nice guy. He is also God in disguise as we all are, wearing the masks of the Lord of Gods. So you gotta give him that. Number six, the brazier section of the department store should be behind a dainty curtain or calico partition of some kind, a fringed fence to keep out undesirables. Number five, the average American is very hungry for a meat sandwich. Meat sandwich. Number four, the fear of the sudden onset of old age. A young person's fear that they might look in the mirror and be wearing a frizzy gray wig and have lines drawn all over their face. Number three, prayers for money, cars, and major appliances, the spoils of conquest. Number two, thoughts of revenge and stabbing. These violent thoughts are nothing more than the imaginations of self-stabbing, for when we cut our enemy, it is we who bleed the blood of the other. This is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. Am I right? It is a ludicrous notion. There is no such thing as a revenge. 
Half the time your enemy doesn't even know what the hell you're going on about. They don't even remember the offensive event in the first place. You might as well kick a rock or bite a pillow. Or you could take a ball of dough and poke two eyes in it and make a line for the mouth and say, this is my boss, I'm going to bake him into a pizzeria pie. Revenge is a dish best served the Italian way. It was Saint God of the Church of the Kingdom of Heaven times who asked, Who among you would dash his enemy in the head with a rock? No one? Good. That reminds me of a story. There was once a very small man, roughly one inch tall. He looked like a normal guy except for his size. He was pitied by many. Some people adored him just to be contrary. It was 75% pity, 25% adoration and adulation. His name was Steve. He had voluntarily shrunk himself measure by measure, attending a weekly shrinking session at the labs at UCLA. A nurse would lead him into a chamber. They would switch on a ray. He'd sit there flipping a magazine. Each week, the hour-long session would leave him slightly smaller, but he could hardly notice the progress. Very gradual. Maybe the print in the magazine seemed easier to read. The magazine heavier, its perfumed samples more pungent. It's hard to say. But Steve stuck with it. There's a good boy. And after one year of these sessions, he was an inch tall. They gave him his stipend and a certificate stating he was a shrink-ray graduate or what have you. Steve did the interviews in the local newspapers over a dozen times. He was the guest of honor at the stock car races. For every three japes and jokes at his own expense, Steve would sign an autograph. The local fame was enormous. He received free meals, or 10% off. Children would call out to him as he walked to work at the missile factory. Hey, Steve, you're so small, you're no larger than a mouse. Or... Hey, Steve, you've got a tiny skeleton. Now, Steve didn't want any of this attention. He had embarked on his shrinkage journey as a way to earn a stipend. The missile business had taken a hit with the end of the war in the Vietnam. We have enough missiles, thank you very much. The missile company was reduced to doing business with the local police departments, and Steve's job was downsized to 20 hours a week at a reduced rate of pay, and this had driven him into the arms of the scientists at UCLA, Shrink Lab Department of Miniaturization and Small Style. Fully grant-funded. One day, Steve was reading a tiny print edition of the Peter-shaped universe by yours truly, Sir Alan Watts, when he became awakened. He had touched the face of God, and God whispered and kissed him and told him to change his name to Skyhawk. <laughs> yes, it still sounds like a Buick. It's, well, you know, to each their own. Where is Skyhawk now? I can tell you, he is perfectly content, for he sits on a throne of sand. I'm Alan Watts. Please join us next week when we will ask the question, What is love? That should be a lot of fun. <laughs> yes. We will be speaking to a secret guest. He's an area rancher and a cowboy philosopher, and to his credit, he has been married four times, so he ought to know about the mysterious life force we call love. We shall also discuss the price of pineapples. 
See you then, you groovy cats and cool kittens. Alan walks out. Wake Up with Alan Wax is a production of the Bay Area Enlightenment Foundation. Transcripts of this radio broadcast may be purchased by sending a dollar and a self-addressed stamped envelope to Wake Up with Alan Watts, care of Alan Watts, 1224 Willowbrook Estates, Sausalito, California, 94965.